Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Inside Asia podcast from the Center for Asian Democracy at the University of Louisville. This is Dave Buckley, CAD's director, and Paul Weber, endowed chair of politics, science, and religion here at UofL. Um, thanks, as always, to great help from our colleague, Will Wigginton. Uh, the podcast is back with you today. Um, episodes are always accessible through our website at the University of Louisville, as well as through Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search Center for Asian Democracy, subscribe, review, and stay up to date on future content. We're going to be joined today uh, for a conversation with Dr. Jail Cornelio um, for a discussion about religion and politics in the Philippines with special attention to the changing role of religious leaders in the country. Um, listeners are probably aware uh, that the Marcos family is back in uh, the executive office of the Philippines. Um, and that's a family with a long history of, uh, of complicated relationship to religious leaders in the country. Religious leaders played a very important role in the people power movement um, in the mid-1980s that saw the restoration of democracy, um, especially uh, leading figures in the Catholic Church. The current president uh, has a complicated relationship with organized religion, but religious leadership has also changed in the Philippines, uh, which is a major focus of Jail's research. Um, we're super excited to feature J.O. because he has joined us at CAD this semester as a visiting fellow, um, and uh, and we're thrilled to have him here working on a book manuscript project on this um, topic. Uh, before we get to uh, introducing J.O. In, in our conversation, um, I do just want to make a quick note for listeners who may be listening in uh, the closing days of February or early March. Um, CAD is really thrilled to host on uh, Tuesday, March 5th. Um, at the Speed Art Museum here in Louisville, uh, investigative journalist Patricia Evangelista to deliver its 2023-24 annual lecture in Asian democracy. Uh, Evangelista's work on human rights in the Philippines drug war during President Duterte's administration was uh, groundbreaking at the time, and she has recently published uh, a book based on that reporting, uh, Some People Need Killing. Uh, this was named Time Magazine's number one nonfiction of 2023 and a New York Times top 10 book of 2023. Um, more information can be found on CAD's website. Um, the event is free and open to the public. We'll have uh, a reception afterwards um, and Q&A and book signing as well, uh, featuring uh, Carmichael's. Um, and, uh, and we do ask that folks register if planning to attend. The event will also be live streamed for listeners who might be outside of Louisville. So uh, without any further ado, let me give a little bit of introduction to uh, Dr. Jayo Cornelio. Uh, he is Professor of Development Studies at Ateneo de Manila University. Um, and as I said, right now, uh, visiting fellow at, at the Center for Asian Democracy here at UofL. Um, he's also Associate Editor of the journal Social Sciences and Missions uh, and a regular contributor to uh, Rappler.com, the very important uh, online news source in the Philippines. Uh, Jael's scholarly work revolves around the areas of religious change, religion and public life, and sociology of generations. Uh, he's the author of Being Catholic in the Contemporary Philippines, Young People Reinterpreting Religion, and lead editor of the Routledge International Handbook on Religion and Global Society. His edited volume, Rethinking Filipino Millennials, Alternative Perspectives on a Misunderstood Generation, won Best Book in the Social Sciences in the 2022 Philippine National Book Awards. Uh, his most recent uh, monograph, co-authored with um, Jose Maria Francisco, um, is People's Christianity, Theological Sense and Sociological Significance. Um, he's involved in a number of major grant projects, 
um, and has been recognized um, in various ways by uh, leading scholarly bodies, both in the Philippines and internationally. Uh, probably most prominently, he was in 2021 named the Outstanding Young Men People of the Philippines for his contributions in education and sociology. Uh, Jayel is an engaged scholar as well and a total uh, dynamo. So we're thrilled to have him here um, in uh, in Louisville for the uh, for the next several months. Without any further ado, uh, we can go ahead and get started with our conversation with Professor Jayel Cornelio. Jayu, well, again, welcome to uh, CAD, and thanks for being with us today. And thank you for having me. I'm so pleased to be part of CAD now. All right. Um, well, maybe you can get us started, actually, before we get to the religion side of the story, um, with just an update on where politics stands right now in uh, the Philippines, in your view. So for a lot of our American listeners, anyway... Mm. Probably the last time that the Philippines was in our national headlines um, would have been related to uh, the start to the to the Marcos presidency, right? And this idea mm. um, that the former dictator's family was returning to power, mm. and that this was yet another sign that democracy was kind of in peril mm. uh, in the country, and, and of course in much of the of the world. Um, that was about eighteen months ago. Yes. Uh, like, if you had to briefly summarize how that eighteen months has gone politically, what would you uh, what would you characterize it as? It depends on who you're asking, to be honest. You know, if you're asking the typical Filipino, um, most likely that person would say that democracy is strong. In fact, 89% of Filipinos, David, would say that they're very satisfied with how democracy is working in the Philippines. So this is the total opposite of what academics and commentators had been saying about the rise of Marcos. And for good reason also, right? Of, of course, people who know history and people who know what happened during the martial law and the responsibility, accountability of this family to the country. But in spite of all of that, you've got 89% of Filipinos who are saying that democracy is working very well. Um, now, the question, of course, is whether Filipinos are benefiting from the presidency of Marcos. I think that's really the that's where the uh, the the test really lies. And um, in the past few months, we've seen so many struggles uh, that Filipinos have to confront: inflation, for example. Uh, and to this day, that remains to be a big problem for Filipinos, even though it has abated to some extent. And then you also have the rift uh, between um, President Marcos and the Vice President, Sara Duterte. And um, these things, these situations call into question how strong democracy is, even if Filipinos might in fact be very appreciative of democracy as an idea. Sure. Yeah, well, maybe we can follow up on that uh, yeah. Duterte-Marcos alliance. So again, if one listeners may or may not be aware of this, that mm. one of the things that really swept Marcos to a very convincing victory right, a yes. couple of years ago was uh, the alliance with with uh, the right. Duterte family and with um, uh, Sarah Duterte in particular. Um, there's been reporting recently about tensions in that relationship. This is not a huge surprise that, no. their, that their interests might not perfectly align. But yeah, how would, how would you sort of get us up to speed on the status of uh, the Marcos-Duterte cooperation and, or alliance? Oh, it only goes to show how political alliances are perennially fragile in the Philippines. You know, your loyalties are not to a person per se, but to yourself at the end of the day, <laughs> right? It depends on whether being allied in alliance with somebody is going to bolster your popularity or not. And I think that is where, uh, that is something that we should be paying attention to, uh, precisely because I don't think it would be in the interest of President Marcos to, to destroy this relationship, only because 
we know that a lot of uh, Visayan-speaking people, and these are the, this is the ethno-linguistic group to which Sara Duterte belongs, uh, voted, you know, voted for Bongbong Marcos because of this alliance. Yeah, it you mattered, know? right? Yeah, yeah and, and it really mattered. It really mattered far, uh, far more than. Um, than say the Ilocano vote, for example, right? The Ilocano vote, the, the ethno-linguistic group to which at least the Marcoses, uh, the Ferdinand, the senior, uh, the dictator uh, uh, belonged, and so destroying this relationship would, in the long run, not be beneficial to 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 Bongbong Marcos. But at the same time, I think Sara Duterte is also aware that this is too early. <laughs> in the game to uh, bolt the alliance, even if we already are seeing uh, the uh, the father, uh, Rodrigo Duterte, wielding his influence. And in fact, as we speak, we know that they're uh, planning a prayer meeting of sorts somewhere in Cebu in the coming days um, to pray, as they say, for the president. Uh, but also it was a statement of, you know, for power that hey, this is still our turf, and we can still do something. If you, if you do something that would hurt my family, we can really turn the tide against you. Okay, so, so let's pivot to the religion uh, stuff a little bit. Tell us a little bit more about this. I don't actually know about this. So, so uh, who, which religious act groups are involved in this, and what's the kind of agenda of this of this rally? Oh, this is the interesting part, right? Um, We've no, been too busy driving around uh, the Midwest, <laughs> so I haven't. I've lost track of this. Oh. <laughs> Here's the thing. No religious leader has been invited to the prayer <laughs> meeting. And this is where it becomes even more interesting in the Philippines, right? You can just set up a prayer meeting and pray together and then just call it a prayer meeting, right? Without even inviting any religious leader. But, okay, I mean, um, we know that Catholic leaders were not invited, have not been invited. Or maybe they will be. Who knows? But but we also know that the Catholic leaders, at least the more prominent ones, are not in cahoots with, uh, with Duterte or even with the Marcos administration. But having said that, we also know that there are certain religious leaders like Apollo Kiboloy. He's one of the rising pastors. Of course, he's controversial in the Philippines because of the human trafficking cases and the sexual abuse cases that uh, that the FBI has uh, against the man. And there are no uh, plans of um, you know, talks about him being extradited to the U.S. Uh, but Put that aside, we know that he is wielding, this pastor, Kiboloy, is wielding his influence now, in fact, has uh, openly criticized um, uh, the president, Marcos, uh, and has, uh, if I'm not mistaken, even called him a traitor, you know, <laughs> um, you know, um, uh, uh, to him, you know, because uh, the, this pastor supported him, his candidacy, and now he seems to have turned his back on him because he feels that that he is supporting what the Americans are doing to investigate him and to you know to to um, bring him to justice. Okay. Wow. Um, I, I, yeah. No, I hadn't tracked that yet. So that's good to good to know. Um, the the other kind of legacy of the Duterte administration, if uh, if listeners in the U.S. know one thing about it, is probably the drug war right, and the violence associated with the drug war. Um, can you give us just a quick update on sort of where that stands? I mean, Marcos in general ran on a on a sort of vague platform yeah. of continuity, but um, yeah. in practice, that uh, that actually hasn't looked exactly the same since he's come into office, right? Mm. How, how would you sort of sum that up? The war on drugs. Yeah, it's true that the war on drugs is not the central policy of this administration. Where Marcos is not known for the war on drugs, but it's also true that the war on drugs hasn't really abated. It has. It still uh, lingers. It's still 
still endures, and we have reports from Human Rights Watch, for example, that say that uh, killings are still uh, taking place around the country. Um, and that is what makes it um, more controversial, if you think about it, because nobody talks about it, and yet it's still happening. Um, and and who is taken to task, you know, for uh, for 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 these killings? Um, nobody is. Nobody is taken to task. So, um, and at the same time, we also know we also know that uh, President Marcos is not supportive of any ICC investigation on uh, on whatever crime that Duterte must have committed uh, as president. Uh, you know, waging the war on drugs on people. Yeah. So, so that's that that in itself is also very very telling. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so um, listeners may or may not be aware that in the last election, um, in a fairly unusual way, um, well over a thousand Catholic clergy sort of formally endorsed the opposition uh, candidate, Lenny Robredo, um, and that even those who didn't formally endorse the opposition were, were quite kind of uh, public in, in criticisms of the legacy of martial law and raising concerns about Marcos. And, of course, we still see a very comfortable win in the election for Marcos. What's your sense of how kind of the high levels of um, the, the Catholic majority in the country, a country that's still about 80% Catholic, right? Um, about how the highest levels of the Catholic bishops and figures mm. who historically would have seen themselves as mm. kind of the spokespeople of the nation on yeah. a certain level. How do you think they right now are thinking about their role in public life? Good question, David. I think they don't know what to do. And to, and to be honest, because even even uh, amongst themselves, they are having this conversation about what now, what now, you know, what what do we do now? Um, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, Brother Amado uh, Picardal uh, wrote an opinion piece spelling this out uh, that that even uh, he knows that the, the Catholic leaders do embrace their prophetic calling in a in a country like the Philippines. They know, and he he. And he himself embraces that, but at the same time, what does it mean to be prophetic today, right? In a in a in a country where research would show, surveys would show that Filipinos do not like it whenever their priests uh, use the pulpit to talk about politics. I know I'm familiar with your own work that uh, with Stephen Brooke that uh, that there seems to be a relationship between um, um, whatever local priests say and the political disposition of the people within that community. Um, and that might be true at the local level. So whatever the priests say, that might resonate with the people in that community. But if there's one thing that we have uh, seen really in the recent election, is that um, what, uh, what, what the priests are saying at the national level, they're not necessarily making a dent on people's attitudes, uh, political behavior, and so forth. Um, and, 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 and in many ways, that is really where uh, the test of the of the pudding, right? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Really, really is. And so, and so, at the end of the day, I think the Catholic Church has we we they have been very quiet in the past months, and that's the reality. And I think that's a that's a, that's an indication to us that that they're still trying to find their feet mm -hmm. um, in the crowd. Yeah. So, so a lot of of your research um, in recent years has been focusing actually on what you sometimes call emerging churches yes. um, of different kinds outside of that Catholic yes. majority. Yes. Um, and uh, again, for for those who might not be familiar, we're talking here somewhere probably around sort of ten to fifteen percent, maybe mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. the uh, of the of the landscape in a country of well over a hundred million. A lot of people, right, represented by some of these religious leaders. How do you see some of those leaders finding their footing in the new administration? 
Excellent, excellent. Um, um, for the sake of our American audience, um, when we talk about emerging churches in the Philippines, uh, we're mostly talking about one evangelicals. Many of them are uh, many of them are led by pastors who are uh, influential one way or another in their respective congregations, but also in politics. We know that. Uh, but we're also talking about other emerging churches of the non-mainstream strand, if I may describe them that way. Many of them come from non-Trinitarian backgrounds. So I mentioned Apollo Kibaloy. He has a church called the Kingdom of Jesus Christ. Uh, but there's also Iglesia Ni Cristo, Filipino for Church of Christ, uh, a church known for uh, endorsing candidates, and they expect their own followers to uh, to really be voting for whoever they are in, they endorse in, uh, during the elections, both lo local and national. So it's very important to recognize the political influence of these emerging churches because they shape, if not political behavior, at the very least political discourse about, about policies that, that, that matter. The war on drugs, for example, uh, was heavily supported by so many pastors, uh, by, by these churches um, that we mentioned. Uh, the reinstatement of the death penalty, supported also by uh, by many of these religious leaders. Not all of them, certainly, but we know, we know. But also, but beyond these congregations, David, we also know that um, there are uh, legislators now, uh, public officials, who come from these churches. Some of them were pastors themselves, so there are senators, there are uh, members of the House of Congress who who were pastors at some point uh, and who belong to this or still to this day part of those churches and they're wielding their influence to resist uh, whatever progressive policies there might be. You name it, you know, from the struggle for gender equality uh, to the support for the death penalty, they're always on the side of what we might call punitive, more illiberal um, uh, side of things. Yeah. Okay. So now we're getting pretty close to what you're spending your time here doing. So yes. we'll, we'll kind of step back from uh, from the political update um, to to give you a chance to talk about why you're uh, why you're here with us at CAD and 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 your manuscript that you're uh, in the midst of right now. Um, looking at the relationship between theology and nationalism in the country, um, this is not a new idea that theology and nationalism would be closely linked in the Philippines, right? Um, but you're arguing that it's linking in new ways these days. So just kind of uh, to sum up, how would you summarize the uh, the project uh, as it stands now? Good, good. And let me just preface my answer by saying that I'm very grateful to CAD for really hosting me because I need the space and the time to really just focus on thinking and writing this manuscript. Uh, so the book that I have in mind will argue two things. The first is that if you want, if we want to understand the religion and public life in the Philippines today, yes, we want to understand still the endurance of the Catholic Church, but at the same time, we also want to acknowledge at the very least the, the big roles that other emerging churches are playing. Uh, Iglesia Ni Cristo, uh, Apollo Kiboloy's Church, the Evangelicals, and, and there are many evangelical megachurches and so forth. Uh, they, uh, uh, not only do they have uh, big congregations, but they also have uh, media enterprises, you know, television stations, uh, influential social media, uh, the presence of social media, etc. Uh, and at the same time, they, they, are wielding, uh, they are supporting their own candidates, if not wheel, uh, fielding their own. So the, the, the fact of the matter is that this is no longer the 1970s where, where only the Catholic Church played a uh, 
huge role, even though we also know back in the 1970s, the evangelicals also played an important role. But now in the 21st century, 2024, we know that, that these churches are maybe the minority, but they're not necessarily voiceless. Mm. So that's the first premise of the book, first argument of the book. But the other thing that I want to highlight is that if we look at the discourse, yes, they, they have different belief systems, they have different theological convictions, but in their own ways, David, they are claiming the Philippines to be a Christian nation more so than, say, the Catholic Church. This is not new, right, that the Philippines is the only Christian nation in Asia. We've heard that so many times. Filipinos are so much so familiar with this, even though it's a mistake because... <laughs> it's East Timor erasure. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's East Timor. Timor-Leste erasure, exactly. Because Timor-Leste has, proportionally speaking, far more uh, Catholics. 90% of them are Catholics. In the Philippines, we only have 80%. Uh, but the other reason that we, it's a mistake to say that the Philippines is a Christian country, it's because the constitution itself is secular. Um, it, 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 it upholds a ch the separation of church and state. So yes, we are predominantly Catholic, but it, does it make us a Catholic country? And that is where, the, or a Christian country, that is where the crux of the matter really is. Because you have now a lot of churches who are claiming the Philippines to be a Christian country in their own way, sometimes through the songs that they produce, sometimes through uh, the their their. Uh, the prayers that they pray or through the political, through the speeches that the pastors make in support of this candidate or that candidate, in support of that policy or that policy. Just to give an example, to this day, we, uh, we don't have a solid law that protects the LGBTQ plus from different forms of discrimination. Sure, there are many statements here and there in different laws that would protect Filipinos uh, from different kinds of discrimination. But we also know that in the past years, the LGBTQ plus community has been pushing for a very specific law. It's called the SOGI uh, Equality Bill or the Anti-Discrimination Bill to recognize that, hey, uh, the LGBTQ plus are still suffering from different kinds of discrimination in the church, in the schools, in the workplace, etc., etc. Uh, but we know that uh, the conservative faction uh, religiously speaking, in the legislation and in civil society are resisting this because they think that, uh, number one, this is not Filipino. And then number two, we're a Christian country. God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. So that discourse, that discourse uh, may be funny to us, but from my point of view as a sociologist, sociologist of religion, obviously it is very consequential. That's how Filipinos think. And unless this is confronted at the level of people's consciousness, theologies that are being preached at church, unless those things are, and theology is also proclaimed in the House of Representatives, unless those, uh, those, that discourse is, is confronted credibly, the whole idea that, yeah, we should not, we should not pass this because we, after all, we are a Christian country. Of course, it raises a lot of questions, right? Which Christianity, which nation are we talking about? What about people who don't believe in that kind of Christianity? Yeah, I mean, I'm wondering, actually, if you could spell that out a little bit more, because one solution that at least some American listeners might have to the sort of situation you just described is, well, we need to sort of advocate more strongly for secularism. This is totally but, inappropriate. And we need this is why we need to remove religious kind of rhetoric from democracy and but, um, uh, and and, uh, and we're dealing with these problems too and so this this is exactly why we need to uh, to be stricter about this stuff. Your project is not making that kind of argument. At least I don't think so. Um, how do you see 
um, sort of political theology fitting into what you're going to argue sh- uh, could be a response to this kind of religious Good. nationalism. Good. It would be difficult to push for that kind of secularism in the Philippines because the Philippines, on some surveys, in comparative surveys, is arguably the most religious society on earth. <laughs> Right, <laughs> the belief in God and such valuables as uh, self-rated religiosity, we are consistently very high. So if you ask Filipinos to remove their religiosity from the public sphere, um, you're removing practically everything that they have as Filipinos. So, um, and this is one reason why we have to think more carefully about religion in the public sphere. Right? The public sphere is not purely secular, at least I know there's so much debate about this in the literature, but empirically speaking in the Philippines, it just doesn't make sense. To me, um, what it really calls for is a legitimate, credible um, uh, pushback on the one hand, but also maybe deliberation, conversations about about what it means to be a Christian nation today. Because I think there are two pathways here, David. one pathway is what you have already been witnessing here in the U.S., that, that there's only one brand of Christianity. All kinds of Christianity are heretical or not consistent with what the Bible teaches. So if, um, and that, for the most part, is fundamentalist, conservative at the very least, about, about heteronormativity, the family, um, and who gets married, who doesn't get married, etc. Um, but that's not the only way of being Christian. We know. I mean, we, uh, there are other ways of Christian reflections about family life. There are so many other ways of thinking about um, gender and faith and religion and so forth. Um, theologians have been doing uh, a lot of this, um, progressive thinking about faith and gender, etc. Uh, but we don't hear much uh, when it comes to these things in, Philippine, in the Philippine public sphere. I feel that these are questions that need to be asked um, on radio programs and podcasts and television programs in the classroom, even in Catholic schools and so forth, because, because they're already right here in front of us. Um, and the failure to confront that by simply saying we don't do God talk here is not going to do justice. It's not going to change the, the conversation altogether. Mm. In fact, for the, uh, what it would do in the end is would, it would simply reinforce the, the, the pervasive view. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so um, this relationship between religion and nationalism is obviously yeah. uh, very close to the surface here in the U.S. now. There's, as you've sort of already just in your first couple of weeks here gotten a sense of um, this concept of Christian nationalism has become a huge focus in uh, journalism and research, sociology, political science. Um, and uh, and you're also thinking about religion and nationalism. I'm curious what your impressions are now that you've been here for for a few mm. weeks and, and had some exchanges of how Christian nationalism in the U.S. compares to what you're observing in uh, sort of theological nationalism in the Philippines. Excellent, excellent question. I think Christian nationalism here wages a war because it is premised on the f- on on palpable fear among many Americans. Um, uh, and it works, right? Uh, uh, there's so much moral panic surrounding uh, 
we know re even recently, right? Um, IVF and the embryos and uh, Alabama and uh, that's just yeah, that's just never what, a dull moment in, in religion in no, U.S. No, politics, no, right? <laughs> right, that's right. I mean, you wake up in the morning and you turn on your television. <laughs> oh, there's another religious issue, um, 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 and this is just on top of many or many other things in the U.S. Right? Um, uh, teaching the Bible, right? Uh, the Ten Commandments. Um, 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 and 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 is 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 the U.S. a Christian country, and and how how did the founding fathers think of the religious identity of of, of the U.S. These are conversations that these are questions conversations that you might find some resonance in the Philippine context, but I think for the most part the situation of religious nationalism in the country uh, is triggered, if I may use that word by certain threats, uh, because I think Philippine society is changing rapidly, and this is really the best time to be a sociologist of religion in the country, which I am, uh, because now we're seeing a lot of generational shifts when it comes to changing attitudes towards divorce. For the, for the, for the sake of our American audience, the Philippines is the only country in the world without any divorce law. As I say, on top, apart from the Vatican, but nobody gets married in the Vatican. But in the Philippines, people do get married and they don't have any recourse if the marriage fails. They do have, of course, annulment, but that's an entirely different process. Um, and again, we don't have that because the Philippines is supposed to be a Christian nation, among many other explanations. Um, um, uh, and there's a lot of big push now. There's a big push now for divorce. Uh, legislating divorce. And then we've, we've mentioned gender equality, uh, death penalty, their incitement of the death penalty, um, at least in the past few years, uh, was a big issue, the time of Duterte. Um, and obviously the war on drugs as well, which was heavily supported by many, many Christians. So I think the kind of Christ religious Christian theological nationalism, Christians claiming that the Philippines is a Christian country, primarily is triggered by this, but I must say also, by, the, by, these, uh, by these issues, but I must say also that in a way this is not new because the kind of theological discourse that you find in the Philippines has been, for the most part, very limited, narrow, you know, um, when it comes to the family ideal, for example. No space think, uh, for queer thinking, queer theology, for, or even for feminist theology. I mean, you encounter that in some progressive universities, but in the public discourse, maybe not. So it's important for me as a sociologist to really look at the, to, to, to discern the, the moral and religious underpinnings of this public support for for these uh, illiberal, non-progressive uh, policies, but that's one. But the other one, the other way of looking at it also is that to be to be religiously nationalistic in the Philippines is not necessarily a negative thing. In the U.S., to be a Christian nationalist is we know, right, excludes so many other people. I think in the Philippine setting, and I already have hinted at this uh, a couple of minutes ago, there are other ways of looking at the Philippines as a Christian country. We, we, there are uh, religious discourses that say that because we are a Christian country, we should be able to welcome diversity in our country because we are, and therefore recognizing the place of, let's say, the Muslims who constitute 55% of the population. 
because we are a Christian country and not everybody subscribes to the kinds to the convictions that we have, we should also give respect to the sexual minorities, to the gender minorities, to the LGBTQ plus. And because we're a Christian family, or sorry, a Christian country, shouldn't we also recognize that 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 violence do violence does take place in the household and therefore we should have some space for couples to to set themselves free from from whatever violence that they're encountering in their families isn't that christian also i think you you you, you will encounter a lot of religious leaders who would argue in that direction mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, another thing that you've tracked in some of your work and um, uh, and has a long history, even going back earlier in the colonial period, is flows, kind of religious flows between the United States and the oh, Philippines. Yes. Um, and, you know, there's one version of this story uh, that actually doesn't just take place in the Philippines. It takes place in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, where kind of conservative American religious leaders, especially evangelicals, sort of export their political con and theological conservatism out into the world um, and uh, sort of change local religious dynamics and and, uh, and and see kind of illiberal movements grow up grow around the world reflecting our American sort of uh, priorities. Does that summary seem to you to fit the Philippines right now? How would you say the relationship uh, stands, especially I guess in the evangelical world, but not only there, um, between kind of these local patterns of uh, theological nationalism, that you're observing and international sources, or mm. uh, or maybe the flow going the other way with uh, with uh, actors from the Philippines sort of uh, engaging abroad, actually. Oh, good question. Good question. This in itself merits an entire book, to be honest. You're at the <laughs> sequel. global right, sequel, a global circulation, a transnational uh, flows of religious ideas. Um, the Philippines is not, uh, it's an archipelago, but it's not totally separate from the rest of the world. Uh, the discourse that we find among evangelicals or those who are afraid of, say, the gender equality bill uh, uh, echo a lot of the discourse that evangelicals have already articulated here in the U.S. about, say, the religious freedom of evangelicals and how protecting the LGBTQ plus would impinge on the religious freedoms of uh, evangelicals, say, to talk about homosexuality as sin and so forth. And we've heard this a couple of times um, from legislators themselves or, or Christian leaders themselves or faith-based civil society actors themselves. So in that sense, we can say that uh, the relationship is there. The link is there. You know, um, I'm sure they've done their homework. Some of, these are legislators. These are lawyers. These are civil society advocates, etc. So that's one way of looking at it, right? But the other way of looking at it is also in terms of the theological circulation, the circulate, the global circulation of theological ideas. Uh, do realize that um, that. Um, uh, the evangelical megachurches that we know today in the Philippines, many of them were planted in the Philippines in the 1980s when the dictatorship of Ferdinand Marcos Sr. was on the wane. Uh, so this was the time when American missionaries were arriving in the country and they were setting up churches. And to this day, there are a lot of American missionaries. And these are not your progressive missionaries, are they? Right? They, these are these are your uh, missionaries who are really driven by the gospel, uh, Matthew 28. You know, they're, they're driven by that, the Great Commission and so forth, and conversion and so forth. So they carry with them a particular brand of looking at uh, Christian discipleship, um, re and reading the Bible, um, and and 
and and and these are the things that remain taught in the in the churches. So, for example, uh, you would not you uh, Romans twelve one. Many uh, in our American audience would be familiar with that verse, uh, which simply says that. Uh, the government has the anointing of God, and He has given the, the leaders uh, the authority of the power, the power of the sword, so to speak. And so, therefore, we must submit to them as we submit to God. That kind of, that kind of surface reading of Romans twelve one two uh, um, is echoed <laughs> among many, not just mega churches, but even small churches, even among the new religious church, uh, groups that that we mentioned. Uh, because the take is always conservative, literalist, and just submissive to, to authority. And this works, right? This works in, in high-control religious groups, right? You don't want to encourage division and uh, dissent in these communities. So that's, that's another way of looking at it, right? And then finally, finally uh, we should also uh, consider the global circulation of the literature, um, uh, the past, uh, the books that these uh, religious leaders are reading, many of them are written by American pastors of a, of a, of a very specific conservative theological slant. Again, I've been saying conservative again and again here, but uh, the, the, don't get me wrong, this is not about demonizing conservatism per se. Uh, again, as a sociologist, I respect the role of different religious ways of thinking what I'm just saying here is that can there be other ways of looking at the Bible, for example, and how those other ways of looking at the Bible, how can they shape Philippine society today to become a little bit more open, right? Welcoming not the diversity, but also different ways of, of being Filipino today, Christian or otherwise. Yeah, well, thanks so much for sharing that with us, Jayil. I mean, we're, we're thrilled to have you here in Louisville. It's a great uh, opportunity for us to engage with your work, and um, uh, and we're so glad to be able to, to support the project. So thanks so much. Thank you very much, David. Uh, to our listeners, uh, as always, glad to be with you. Um, we'll be back before long uh, with other interviews. We've had a couple of very important elections in the region just in the last couple of weeks in Indonesia and Pakistan in particular. Um, and, and others coming up, right, in the next couple of weeks, or months anyway, um, in, uh, in India, South Korea, and, and other places. Um, so keep your eye on the Center for Asian Democracies Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram accounts. Uh, and of course, as always, you can subscribe to this podcast on services like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Um, I'll also just add one last note. Um, coming up before long on Tuesday, March 5th, we're thrilled to be welcoming uh, Patricia Evangelista, author of the um, groundbreaking book, Some People Need Killing, um, based on her investigative reporting of the drug war in the Philippines. Uh, we'll have her coming to campus, and so if you happen to be here in Louisville, you can join us in person at the Speed Art Museum, um, where we'll have a talk and exchange that includes J.U., um, and, uh, and then a little uh, book signing and reception that follows that. Uh, more information on that, if interested, also on our website, Facebook, uh, and Twitter accounts. Until next time, be well.